Hey guys, Sklar Brothers here from View from the Cheap Seats podcast. And this week we have one of the best sports writers in the game. And he's got a great podcast as well. Jonah Carey joins us on the podcast. Did you have fun on View from the Cheap Seats, Jonah? I had the most fun and my commute was about 14 steps down to my living room. We did it in your living room. We're in Denver. It's a little road. uh, I'm going to call it a road victory for us all. We all There's no one I want to talk to more than who right now during these baseball playoffs than than Jonah Jonah Carey. Carey. So join us on this episode because we take the deepest dive. Let me just say there is a three a <laughs> Mordecai three, three finger, finger brown reference. There you go. That's and by there. the way, Gar Ryness is not here. I'm kissing him. I'm, I'm giving love. a shout out now. I feel like he always needs to be at least in spirit. When we love talk. to the batting stance yes. guy. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough, and to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D S T L D. You get, like, brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get a 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I am Matt Dwyer. That music you're hearing there is uh, Les Blanks. They're a great band. Go to lesblanks.com. Check out more of their music. For those of you who haven't listened to this show before, it is what I just said it was. It's uh, conversations with various people in the world um, about what they do and their journey in life. And uh, I have a knack for, uh, I guess conversing with fringe sort of uh, revolutionaries and rebels and rockers and uh, subversive types. And uh, today we sort of, or I thought I would uh, stray away from that and I talked today to uh, John Nesse who owns a soda pop shop, this really cool old weird grocery store that only sells soda pop, beer and uh, funky weird candy. And I thought it'd be cool to get John's story and everything, but uh, I guess I just have a knack for drawing political people, political social people into my life. So I had, I had a very interesting conversation with uh, John about a lot of things, what it's like to be a small business owner. And uh, he's a really interesting guy. And it's uh, it's uh, it's not as uh, dark and as weird as some of my other conversations. But John's a really interesting guy. And we talked about a lot of things that I, I didn't expect to go into. So uh, here it is. Enjoy John Nessie, soda pop shop guy. John Nessie. Nessie? Whatever. Sure? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. And you own and operate the Galco Soda Pop Stop in, uh, we're technically in Highland Park, right? This is the Highland Park area of Los Angeles, the first area annexed to the city beyond the Pueblo boundaries. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's a good good chunk of history there. It is. <laughs> Are you a native Los Angelian? Yes. Los Angelian? Uh, yes, my family came out of uh, a Chavez Ravine. 
Oh, really? My grandfather herded goats on that hill before the Dodgers were there for about maybe 80, 90, 80 years or 60 years. I don't know. I mean, wow. So you was your family was part of the... Um, I don't know what the word would be to, to, when they were pushing you, pushing the residents out of that no, area. They left them where they were. They were right next to the armory. There oh, was so. a little pocket of houses, and they're right at the gate of the armory, and they left them alone. They didn't take them. Oh, so they got to they kept their goat herding, and then while well, they built Dodger Stadium. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Yeah, my uncle, my uncle did all of the. Uh, he was the he worked with a company, and they did all of the sores and all the water lines for Dodger Stadium. And what few people don't know is that all the work was done on a handshake with no contract, a million dollars worth of work. Boy, they, that couldn't happen these days. Not today. And he everybody said that Walter O'Malley was really, really a very tough negotiator and a tough person to work with. And, and my uncle and his boss came back and said, well, he was the easiest person we've ever had to work with. And they asked him, they were the high bidder on the job, and they asked him, now, why did you why did you select us? We were the high bidder after a year and they completed the work. And O'Malley told him, he says, because you were out of the three bids, you were the only ones that finished ahead of schedule or on time. Everybody else was always late. Do you know how much money you saved me? Wow. Is that was that like an intentional thing the companies would do to, to drag it out, maybe? To to, to Well, I to... don't know what that is, but all I know is that, you know, they were very when they bid a job they were right on the money. If they said they were going to finish it in a year or whatever the, the time was, they finished the job in, in the time span allotted. They didn't go over. And that was that was nineteen. That was about nineteen fifty-seven. Yeah, because that was fifty-eight. It's been fifty-one or two years since the Dodgers have been up there, years, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Fifty years this year. Wow, that's amazing. You, you didn't get to meet O'Malley at all, did you? Oh or? no, I never met him. My grandfather did. Right. If you go back and t <laughs> take a look at the uh, the Herald Express. That when the Dodgers opened the stadium, my grandfather's standing right next to him in that opening picture. Wow, that's because I, I just watched that documentary recently, oh. so I should I should go back and watch just so I could look at your pops, grandpops. Well, he's on, he's there. I mean, he was, oh boy. Oh. So you probably do. Did they give you good tickets still, or no? That's no, no, they didn't give anybody tickets or anything. No, that's, there was no, nothing like that. You did your work, you got paid. That was it. Yeah. All right, fair enough. So, and you yourself grew up in Chavez Ravine. Well, yeah, my parents after, uh, well, let's see, it was roughly, what was it, 1950, about 1950, uh, we moved to Pasadena. All right. You know, that was the time when, it, you know, that, the new houses were being built and, and the people were immigrating out of the city into the suburbs. Right. Which so is, my parents was, sub, was Pasadena kind of, because now Pasadena's pretty urban it actually well, it reminds was. me of my hometown a lot oh, no no i mean <laughs> when we moved into where we are where my parents built their home there was still uh, they had just pulled out the orange groves and the avocado trays and there were still people with horses and they were giving them a hard time because the horses smelled <laughs> but they were there for you know they lived there i forgot their names i'll have to think about their names but they lived in in that area for what 50 70 80 years something like that and they had horses and they were eventually moved yeah i think people don't realize and i mean i don't realize that there's a part a lot of parts of la that were very almost rural like chavez ravine and stuff where people were farming and whatnot within the city i come from chicago where 
it was just kind of everybody shooting each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I they mean, still if, are doing that, by the way. <laughs> if you go back and take a look at the old names around, um, like where the um, where the train station is, uh-huh. uh, Union Station, yeah, Vignes Street. Well, he was the first one. He was a French immigrant, and he actually planted uh, vineyards there. And once upon a time, people don't realize it, but that area was one of the largest wine-producing areas in the state. Then they had a um, an epidemic of some kind of bugs that wiped out the grape uh, vineyards, and they moved up north, and they moved out to Cucamonga. But that's where the where the wine industry started in California. I would had no idea. So I mean, even before Northern California? Or? Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't realize that the largest producer of wine grapes in the world was the San Gabriel Mission. And it stretched from the foot of the... Uh, the mountains, you know, yeah, 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 all the way to the ocean, and they grew grapes. They were the largest wine producer. Well, they could have the changed world. the history of Los Angeles pretty drastically if they oh, were yeah. still. <laughs> we might be able to get away with drinking and driving a lot easier. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, how long have you owned uh, Galco, the Galco Soda Pops well, stop? I went to work for, with my father when I was about six years old, and I was tall enough where I could dust the bottom shelves where everybody else it was hard for them to get down there to dust them but I could do it pretty easily so when I went to work with my father and he brought me he handed me a duster and he says okay that's your job you take care of all those those shelves was it this store no no, oh, no. no we've been here since 55 but we've been in Los Angeles since 1897 and we were uh, before this we were here we were actually at the corner of Castellar and Ord now there's no more Castellar Street it's now part of North Hill when they cut the uh, when they did away with the Hill Street tunnels that used to exit onto Sunset, they uh, they built a ramp down to Castellar Street, took the building we were in, and um, renamed it North Hill. So all that's so gone th- in the downtown area. Yes, right. downtown. So, so your your father opened up a grocery store. He did not open. Oh, it. he became a partner with the man that was partners with the man before him. <laughs> so it's been passed along. <laughs> So and that, the original two partners were Coyote <coughs> and Cordopasi. Was that a Gal, was it called a Galco? It was or, called Galco, yeah. And that was just a regular grocery store? Yeah. So you started working for him when you were six we, years old, just dusting off the bottom shelves? Oh, out. yeah. Boy, my father would have gone to jail for child abuse today. <laughs> I mean, it was the best thing that ever happened. And I, think, and I think the politicians should take a little heed to people bringing their kids to work and having a work ethic before they get a job so that they know how to work because most it's, they they send them out if they don't pay them they call they now call it an internship yeah that's a great way to get free i know people who take advantage of that they're like oh we'll get some oh, inter- yeah. yeah i mean they take advantage of it i thought that was slavery <laughs> yeah especially the showbiz people love to take advantage of that one yeah but uh, i was like i my f- parents moonlight lighted cleaning offices and i would go with them and i would scrub help them out and they would give me a dollar which when you're Six, that's a lot of bread. Well, At least it not wasn't only a- that, but, it, but you're watching your parents. The best thing that can happen to young people is for them to see how their parents will work. I mean, we have too many kids coming out of school, and they want to start at the top. Yeah. And that's a problem. They don't know how to work. That somebody told me recently that he has a friend that works for the Mac company, not the computers, but the makeup company. Oh, okay. And the executives are having a crisis where their employees' parents, early 20s parents, are calling up and complaining that their kids didn't get raises or promotions. And it's like such a crisis that the executives had to meet about it. 
Well, let me tell you this. I went to a, uh, I was asked to go to speak at a convention for, it's called a, something about computers or whatever it is, uh -huh. and it's from people from all over the world. And I was talking to this fellow from Italy, and he told me that it was so bad in Italy that they had to have an employee of the day. Just to please everybody? Just to please people. <laughs> because because if they didn't have somebody patting them on the back and telling them what a great job they were doing, they felt depressed and abused. He says, oh, my goodness, John, I was so happy when that person quit and went to work for another company because it was just, it was, you couldn't get anything accomplished. See, this is why I'm a good employee. Even all the praise in the world, I'm still going to be depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, it doesn't matter what kind of... You could even give me a raise and I'll be bummed. <laughs> so I'll get you the name of that, that <laughs> conference that I went to. <laughs> so what, do you have any... Like, you think that's a, that, that generation, this early 20-something, it's due to them not having a work ethic instilled? They don't have a work think, ethic. They're, I mean, not, I think, they're not exposed to their parents working. The best thing that can happen to young people is to go to work with their parents and have to work with them and see how they work and what they do. Because when they, when they get to, to the place where they have to work, they'll know how to work. I mean, that's the hardest thing in the world today is young people don't know how to work. No. <clears throat> and, you know, actual physical labor. Is What's some... that? <laughs> Believe me. I mean, my father laid, did construction and I saw the way he laid asphalt and... You know, oh when goodness. he came home, I, 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 I mean, I was kind of like, I want to avoid, like, I'm like, that looks brutal. Yeah. I mean, and he was near 50, and it was just, I mean, it was too much. He was getting a hernia a year. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's heavy work. Yeah, that's heavy work. So I, I but, do this thing with the microphone. It's it's pretty minimal carrying. <laughs> well, I, I people come in and say, well, why don't you hire somebody to do that? And I just said, you know what? My next step is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up a, a workout. Jim, where people come in and lift these boxes. You could, yeah, you just put a thing. People would do that. You could start a whole trend. Yeah. See, but that's what's great. And I think that's something else that is a, a miss in uh, business today. It's like, I came in here and a couple weeks ago, and I've been coming here for since I moved into this neighborhood. And you get to have conversations with you, and you own the joint, and you gave me, like, the, the history of the Dr. Pepper bottles I was looking at. And you don't, you don't get that on a lot of grocery stores or any kind of stores these days and that's kind of and that makes it me have a personal experience with you as the owner and the store and that makes me want to come back more often well that's true but you know what's happened is you know everybody lumps all business together in one pile and the politicians have it all wrong they say oh this is what business wants and they'll write a law well most of the time it's what big business wants and what big business wants most is to put little business out of business. Either that or they want to control the game board. And uh -huh. they want everybody to play, to pay them to play. It's and a, that's a problem. It's, it's, not, it's like the mob got incorporated. <laughs> it's like well, they're, it is. They're muscling everybody. They are. They are. I mean, we can go through things and be happy to go over it with you and, and tell you some, <laughs> how they strong-arm tactics. And they're learned directly from the mafia. And without a doubt... Yeah, yeah, because you were saying like uh, there was the uh, the when I was in here, you were saying that there was uh, the the people were trying to pass a law about plastic bags or and oh, going to pay, and they you they were it. like and they were taxing you on like not having the proper recycling bin or something crazy. Well, I, I don't remember call what it was. A couple of years ago, they came in and they said, "Oh, we're going to go green, and we want to put a um, we want you to put a recycling 
bin out front and collect plastic bags. And I said, well, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think we should be recycling. As a matter of fact, I'm the little kid that when I was in the fourth grade or something like that, and the teacher got up and said that we have uh, 2% of the world's population, but we were using, what was it, 60% of the natural resources of the world. I said, and I was the one that sat there and thought about it. Well, what are the other 98% um, of the people doing? What are they using if we're using all of these natural resources? Right. Anyway, so I thought it was a good idea to have this thing. And then they told me, oh, and you have to keep count of the bags and make sure they're clean. And they started all of this baloney that I consider baloney, where you were the responsible party for keeping this, this thing out in front. And I asked them, I said, now, I know this is done by business, so how much am I, am I large enough to, am I, are you demanding me to do it? Or are you asking, well, I found out that I was smaller than what you needed to have a, um, to a recycling. Yeah, right. For oh, these so they didn't have bags. to demand you to do it. Yeah, they didn't have to demand me to do it. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want, to, I don't want another governmental agency telling me what I have to do and then fining me if I don't do it. I don't need that. I mean, there's too much of that going on right now where the governmental agencies come in and they want to fine you for doing things. And that was just another fine. And it's, it's funny that that's under the guise of like, hey, we're doing a positive thing here, and now we'll fuck you. <laughs> yeah, Excuse my language. Yeah, now you get to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, this whole, the whole thing with the lights, these lights, they, they talk about the lights. Oh, well, you can't use those old-fashioned ballasts anymore because they contain something that may, may, not does, but may cause cancer. So you can't do those and you have to buy the electronic ballast. Well, the old ones, I can tell you, because I was here in 55 when those ballasts went in, that we started pulling them in 1980. The last one was pulled in 95. The, the electronic ballasts, the things that are replacing them that are supposed to be so green and not cause any problems, they may, la they may last three years. May, if you're lucky. And now they're, re they're, they're asking everybody to put in T32s and T34 lights. And their ballast, if you have a power surge, they knock them out. And the life expectancy on those bulbs is about a year to a year and a half. And the old bulbs would go three or four years. It makes you wonder who, my, my thinking is, who is behind those bulbs? Bill like, Gates. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Bill Gates has, has found out that people, if you get them to buy the same thing over and over and over again and call it advanced technology, they will buy it. And I'm just saying, why don't you build it right the first time? That seems like a common thing they do these days. They make it so it's, it's a shorter, like I notice with any cell phone I have, they last a, a year and then you are kind of forced into getting and a what, new what's one. What's this? A, a what? A, with cell phones. Like oh, all, cell phones? every cell phone I have lasts about a year and then yeah. it's like, and most people just be, go and move on and buy the next. Buy well, another one. And I'm saying, well, why? Doesn't anything last anymore? I mean, we farmed everything out. I mean, I can tell you the shoes, my shoes. I, I got a, a pair of New Balance <laughs> and the first pair I had lasted a year. And boy, my felt, feet felt great. For the next two or three years, they would last like hmm, six months, three months, four months, and they start falling apart. And then my feet would start hurting. 
and I never figured it out. So finally I got mad and I walked into the New Balance store and I said, I want a pair of shoes made in the United States. And the guy looked at me and he says, well, we have them. And I said, well, good. But he said, most people won't buy them because they're too expensive. And at the time they were like $99 or something like that. And the ones from, from China were $60. And I looked at them and I, and it was really interesting because I said, where are they made? Boston. I said, give me two pairs. <laughs> I will tell you, those shoes lasted about a year and a half. What shoes were they? They were New Balance. Oh, really? Not only did they last two years, but my feet never hurt. I never got back pain like I was getting from the other ones. So, I mean, sometimes we have to say, no, we're not going to buy that junk. Right. Why should I contribute to to global warming by have this big ocean liner bring shoes in from China. <laughs> and that's exactly what's happening. But they tell us how good it is for us. That's how, it's like I remember when I lived in Chicago, there was a corner department store where I'd go and buy pretty much everything. It's like the people worked on commission. And I knew everybody in the store. And it's like now I go back to Chicago, all those independently owned department stores are gone. They're all gone. And it's all you know, Best Buy, and, and it's like, I don't want to deal, and the service is terrible in those places. And I think it's partly because there's no incentive. They just give those people a shitty pay, shitty pay, and it's like, and they don't have any incentive to grow or move up in the company because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> no, I mean, everything, the, the, the big corporations, they've made price the balance point, where everything is based on price, and quality doesn't have anything to do with anything anymore. I mean, how long is the product going to last me? Are they going to hurt my, is it going to hurt my back? Is it going to hurt my feet? Um, are the shoes going to be thrown away in three months because they fell apart? They separated, the rubber separated, the glue doesn't work. What? And, and we don't take that into consideration. They made it price right. and technology. Well, I'll tell you what. We're smart enough to design technology that's good for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And the only way to do it is get these big companies and say, you know what? You have to provide support for your products for 10 years if you're on a computer. No more of this two years, and I'm sorry, we're not supporting it anymore, baloney. And that's what it is, baloney. It is. They have to have support, you're just like a car. You build a car, the car is gonna last 20 years, you have to provide parts for that car for 20 years. And you have to provide internet support and support for everything so that that computer will be running in 10 years. Then it becomes the consumer's choice whether they wanna get a new one or not. Right. I mean, I think also one of the other problems is, is consumers have a short attention span where they quickly, quickly <laughs> move on to the next thing. Is that your cell phone? How old That's is your cell phone? It's, it's good... about five years old. And it you... still works. And somebody said, well, you can get a new one. I said, what do I need a new one for? I'm, my phone is to, to make a call. And it works just fine. And people keep tossing. That's the other thing. People just keep tossing them out. And it's like, God knows what that does with the... Anyway. To, to, but to go back, so you were started working for your father when you were six, six and working, and did you work with the company that entire time, or was oh, that no? Well, I, I went to work with them for one summer. I mean, that was a lot of work for a six-year-old, honestly and truly. So I took him about three years off, and then when he opened here. In, in Highland Park? In 55, yeah, and then I came in after school. I was here the day we opened here, and I, I worked continually with him. And, and you've been here the entire time? I've been here the entire time except for two, two years when he farmed me out to my uncle. 
<laughs> my uncle had a business down in Orange County, and and um, it was a restaurant. And I was going through some um, domestic problems at the same time. I've and, had a lot of those in my life. <laughs> yeah. So, um, my father, my father and I, we talked about it. My uncle made me a deal, and my father says, "Well, I think you should go and help him out." You know, because he doesn't know what's going on down there. And so I ran a restaurant for two years. But other than that, I've been here the whole you've time. You've worked in the... Uh, that's interesting. So you've seen as well on top of like uh, this neighborhood sort of change because yes. you've been here since 1955? 55. And you were how old when you started working here, may I ask? Oh, was I... I don't know. I think I was in sixth grade, seventh, sixth Second. grade, seventh grade. Something and like that. that's that's your whole. That's see, that's another thing you don't see is like a business that goes from, from, get, generation to generation. It doesn't seem to happen much anymore. No, it doesn't happen because because uh, things are moving rapidly. But what more than more than rapidly is the big guys move in, and they open up a superstore. And, you know, like the WalMarts of the world, they move in, and pretty soon you got three blocks of downtown completely destroyed. Now, I want to know the mentality of that. I want to know why does government give the big companies the land to build on and, and tell them they're going to create all these jobs so that they could have the sales tax. They actually have cities fighting over Walmarts, whether to put it on this side of the border or that side of the border, because whoever gets it gets the, the sales tax. And a lot of residents didn't want the Walmart to move in there into Chinatown for a lot of for a variety of ruins the aesthetic of Chinatown drastically which supposedly there was laws about new buildings in Chinatown which they also completely ignored from my understanding and you know a lot of people don't I mean Walmart is a notorious you know put a ton of people out of business all over the country if not world and most of it is little businesses who specialized in it but people they know that most people are going to shop price I mean, what good does it do to walk into uh, to um, the the warehouse? You know the what's the name of that? Like Bevco or no, no the the warehouse for um, um, Home Depot. Home Depot. What good does it to walk in there if nobody knows what they're doing? Nobody can give you a bit of advice on how to fix things. That's what I, I had a friend who worked at at a Petco. Yeah, and he was a. I don't know what kind of like a he was a dog food specialist yeah. and he I was like how are you a special in nutrition for dogs he's like oh they had me watch a video <laughs> yeah like, like, video. oh so you don't you don't know a goddamn thing about it you just watched a video you just watch a video and pass along that information <laughs> I, I've watched I've watched a video on World War Two it doesn't make me a historian <laughs> uh, but but that becomes very important to know how to fix things and we don't fix anything anymore I mean every time we ship a job overseas. We're shipping the technology on how to fix that product overseas. We can't fix anything anymore. We don't know how to do it. Right. That's a problem. That's going to be a big problem. I mean, we've heard of the dark ages. Does anybody realize that we're slipping into the dark ages and we don't even know anything about it? I wonder if the people a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago were slipping into the dark ages and didn't didn't realize they were slipping into the dark ages because they just didn't know how to fix it. They forgot how to do what the people before them knew. Or maybe that's just a continual thing that's been going on for thousands of years. We forget what the predecessors knew, our predecessors. All right, that's that's probably that's probably very true. So when you when in 1955 when this when you first started yeah. uh, when you opened this, what was the neighborhood like in this? Oh, it was 
it was, uh, you know, everybody took care of their, everybody mowed their lawns, the houses were fixed up and taken care of, uh, that type of thing. Um, Wasn't Eagle Rock like a very uh, Irish-Italian neighborhood well, too? This, for was, this was uh, Italian. Uh -huh. There was a lot of Italians in here, but it was, you know, there was a lot of Mexicans, a lot of Italians, but it was the same thing in Chavez Ravine too, uh -huh. you know. There were a lot of Italians. The, the, the people across the street were Mexican, and my mother taught them how to make uh, meatballs or something, and they taught my mother how to make enchiladas. I mean, it was great. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> you could have opened up a joint restaurant there and well, had no meatballs in the taco shells. Well, I think she taught them how to make spaghetti sauce or pasta. I forgot what it was, but, but that's the way it was. Because I think, you know, I, being somewhat of an L.A., I grew up outside of L.A., you don't think of L.A. as being so culturally diverse. And then, like, now I've been here 10 years, and it's like, it's wonderfully diverse. And that's one of the great elements I love about this city is there's so many places to eat food and whatnot. We're getting our picture taken, too. Oh, really? <laughs> Do we know this guy? <laughs> is yeah. that one of your regulars? Oh, that's Tom. He has the Boulevard Sentinel. That's his newspaper. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, very cool. Uh... So, so, and then did the, the neighborhood kind of went through a, 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 a flux or no? Yeah, it went, uh, it went into decline. And did that sort of thing affect business at all? Or have you always, has well, it been pretty no, soon? there was no more businesses. The, the people that were here that owned most of the, uh, the commercial properties, um, they sold off. Uh, and the old businesses were still in there. And then pretty soon, um, uh, a new business wanted to come in. So they offered them a lot more money than what the old business could afford to pay. But the old business has been here for 50 years. They knew what they could afford to pay uh -huh. for the property uh, the, or the buildings they were in. Well, they were booted out. The new ones brought in. But the high rent, that lasted about six months, and then they were vacant. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot, had a lot of empty, empty properties. I mean, if you take a look at, around at the, at the Figueroa Corridor, it was originally set up it was probably the first um, uh, place where you could go and shop at maybe 20, 10 or 20 different clothing stores, men's clothing, uh, baby's clothing. There was a Tots to 10 there. There was model men's. There was Cortland's. There was Ivers. I think I'd be model men, don't you? Well, model <laughs> men was, was quite a place. I mean, oh, they was were it? attracting people from all over the city, from all over everywhere. And I'm saying, you know, I don't understand government you want to do all of these other little things and put them in there get your core set up your core and if you get a lot of little businesses that are specializing in clothing people from all over will come in like ontario mall uh, mills or whatever it is they'll come here and shop they that's what they were doing before they were coming from pasadena from glendale from all over to come here spend their money here now tell me something where do you think the tax dollars flow well they flow downtown so now what good does it do to have all these buildings empty? You should, you should uh, learn from the people who were here before and what they were doing and how they were creating tax dollars for the city by getting people from outside the area to come in and spend their money. Now we have a resurgence going on. You know, Highland Park is on its way back. Yeah. And that was done primarily because the people in the Heritage Trust 20 years ago, they went out and actively sought the gold line to come through this area. You know, originally it was supposed to go through Lincoln Heights, and and there was something that they didn't want it or something. I don't know what was going on over there because I wasn't really that much involved. Mm -hmm. But we had the right-of-way, and the people here were saying, but we already have the right-of-way in place. It's all there. And they, yeah. 
they put the time and effort into it. And if you have a great store, like I know, like people will travel to come to it because it's like nobody offers. I mean, you offer. I don't know what would you. What, how but would you? We have about five hundred and fifty different kinds of sodas, and we have the same amount of beers. And anything in here, you can buy one. Nobody's nobody does that at all, unless it's a Seven Eleven and you want to get like one beer. They do that, but but like yeah. any soda pop, and you have because yeah. that's what's great is like when I first discovered this store, I think I came in and blew ninety bucks because it was like it because there was so much. My grandfather owned bars and and stuff in Chicago, so we always had all kinds of these Different, crazy yeah. soda pops and even some of your beer. So it just triggered those childhood memories even the beer because he was a german and he let me drink it (laughs) but it's like so it became this magical like trip down memory lane walking down your where i was like oh i gotta get that well you know if you if you look at how how soda pop and how the beers and things 60 years ago you could buy one of any soda Uh they came loose they were individual bottles in a crate then they went to six packs to eight packs to 12 packs to 18 packs to 24 packs now what are they, 32 packs or 36 packs? That's more than a case. What are they doing? They're actually spending the consumer's money for them. Yeah, that's a great way of putting price. it. Because that's what I remember when I was a kid, we'd get, uh, there was the, you'd get the cases of uh, like Coke or Dr. Pepper, and they were all in glass bottles. Yeah. And it was, and, or you could get individual smaller bottles, but now it's like, it is, it's just what you said. It's 12 liters and cases you can't, I'm pretty certain you can't buy a six-pack of Coca-Cola in a store anymore. No, they don't sell them. The smallest they'll sell is a 12-pack. And you don't need a... I don't need a 12-pack of Coke in my house. think (laughs) about it. If the only thing you can... If you buy one of their 32-packs, you're certainly not going to buy anything else because you have to use those up before you think about buying another one. Yeah. You know, it's just not going to happen. And that's what they do. They, They plan it so they spend your money for you. Was... Now... Was Galco was it originally a full grocery store when was, you? Yeah, it was a full grocery it, store. How did you how did you transition into it just being soda pop and beer and? Well, it was very it was well I we didn't it wasn't done consciously. On purpose when it was kind of subconscious, we were going broke. And because you were getting beaten by other like oh big, I mean the big chain stores right ran and and what actually happened. What actually, and this is all part of the control game, the chain stores bought the distribution channels for the little markets and closed them down. What do you mean by distribution markets? Well, there was a, there was a, a certified like, grocers was the largest, but actually certified grocers was an, was an outgrowth of Spartan grocers, which was set up for the individual. Who would supply the grocery stores? Yeah. And, they, and these companies bought them out to screw you? Well, let me take another step, go back <laughs> a little further. Actually... Um, uh, Mr. White, who was the first president of Certified Grocers, this was his market a long, long time ago. And he actually pulled by it. He got three or four other little markets together in the area, and they'd buy a, a truck of, let's say, Campbell's Soup or I don't know, whatever they were doing, and they'd split it up amongst the three or four stores. And from that, he developed Spartan Grocers, which was set up for independent little individual mom-and-pop stores. And then out of that grew Certified Grocers, which was set up to, to take care of the, the uh, chain stores. But the chain stores always bought a lot more. And what they did was the chain stores were then, the, the, the control went from Spartan to Certified, and Certain was now uh, controlling Spartan, which is the smaller ones. Just one day, they automatically said, 
um, we're closing up. You have to join grocer specialty. So it's, and the prices were like 10, 15, 20% higher. So it was kind of a, they monopolized. Yeah, either you do it or you're gone. And so what happened was, what was really taking place, what the chain stores were really doing, was removing the cap on supermarket pricing because all of the little stores, they paid more for their products, but they, but they charged more also, like a penny or two or three cents or even a nickel, more. But as soon as they closed the distribution channels, the prices for a case at the new center went up $10, $15 a case. So there was no way you were going to be able to compete with the chain stores. And when they killed the distribution channels for the small stores, they removed that price cap on supermarket pricing and they could charge anything they want. And that's exactly what, what happened. And then they, in doing so, they ran out a lot of people out of business. Well, they put out all of them in a five-year period. All the little stores were gone because they couldn't compete. And we were going through the same thing. And it was really interesting because at that very time, the Pepsi-Cola guy came in and he says, I'm going to, my salesman, I'm going to give you the best price you're ever going to get on a pallet of Pepsi-Cola cans. I'm only going to charge you five fifty-nine a case. And I looked at him and I said, now, how much profit am I going to make on that 100-case pallet? He said, oh, about $30. And I said, well, thank you, but no thank you. I'm going to send my customers down to the Ralphs down the street. They're going to be on sale down there for $1.99 a 12-pack. Now, remember, this is 15 years ago. And he says, well, you can't do that. Pepsi-Cola is a demand item, and your customers are going to demand that you carry Pepsi-Cola. I said, my customers are going to be happy. I was honest with them, told them they can buy them cheaper than I can buy them. There is absolutely no reason for me to, 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 to buy that 100-case that pallet. And he just shook his head and left. He came back the next day with his regional manager and his area manager. They looked around, walked out, and never said a word to me. And after two, and I was really hot. And after two weeks of being really hot, the light bulb went on and said, you know, you should thank Pepsi-Cola for reminding you that you own your shelf space and you can sell anything you want. So I immediately went out and I found like 25 little brands of sodas. And what was really interesting about it, they were in glass bottles. They were still using cane sugar. They were still using, I mean, in, in glass is important because the way the product goes in is the way it came out. Right. But they were using real ingredients. They were using cane sugar. They weren't using corn syrup. They certainly weren't using corn sugar. <laughs> anyway. So I put them on the shelf and people would come in and look and say, well, what are you doing with all those old brands that, that don't sell anymore? And when I got to 250, it's where you're finding them. Well, right now we have about 550 different um, brands of soda. We have about or the same amount of beers. And you can buy one of anything. It's your money. It's your choice. It's your decision. It's not the, con it's not, uh, uh, the big guy's decision to spend your money for you. I like the way you do business, <laughs> but it's great. I mean, it's straightforward. It's inspiring. I need, I need to make a profit. I mean, woo. When you get to the point, no, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, one thing that really aggravates me is the word free. It's probably the most overworked word in, in selling. No, I'm sorry. Nothing is free. You're going to pay. Somebody is going to pay. You are not going to get it for free. I can now I can say to you I would like to give this to you and that's okay. I'll spread the cost off over everything, but it is not free. Somebody pays. 
you have to. That's what business is all about. You have to make a profit. Right. And that was really, really hard early on for a lot of these little bottlers. When I would uh, mention to them, oh, well, uh, I don't know whether we're going to be able to compete. You know, um, uh, we're in glass bottles and, and we charge more and everything. And I would say, Paul, you have to make a profit and you have to charge me. If you don't charge me and if you don't make a profit, I can't buy it. And if I can't buy it, my customers will never have an opportunity of trying your product. And you have a product better than anything I've, I've tasted. And for a lot of little bottlers, they have certain flavors that they do that are just way far and above what you can buy. Like, for example, I was talking to uh, one of the suppliers here, uh, a small bottler, and he says, well, do you know why all the sodas are overcarbonated today? And I said, well, I think it's because they're in plastic in cans and they have to overcarbonate everything because they leach. And he says, yeah, that's part, of the, that's part of it. But most of it is because if you overcarbonate a product, you can cut down on the amount of syrup you, you, you put into product. That's so it's really cheaper to make. You can save like about 25% of the total cost by reducing the amount of syrup that goes in there. And, yeah, and some people like the bubbly stuff. And you, yeah. yeah, and you also sell a lot of old candies and stuff too. Oh, yeah. It was that. So did it go from the soda pop into the candy? Yeah, and, we started with the soda pop, and then at about the same time, we were also moving into beers, uh, the old beers, and and doing that. But it was basically the soda pop, because if you remember, in, back in the seventies or eighties, there was actually a resurgence of micro brews yeah. going on, <clears throat> and and I'm saying. But you have to be 21 in California to buy a beer. It, it, if you're buying a soda, you can be any age. It doesn't matter. You know, if yeah. you have the money, you can buy it. <laughs> it's okay. You know, there's no law. Did anyway, you... so, you know, one day we, had, we had, were doing the sodas, and my daughter says, well, Dad, this is, this is great, but, you know, you really ought to get some old-time candy in here, too. And I said, well, I know where to get them. She said, oh, good, we'll get them. <laughs> Yeah, because there's a lot of things that you have that I haven't, like, especially the candy cigarettes, which you, I'm, you're almost surprised they still make them, but then the nostalgic part of me is like, oh, yeah, those guys. <laughs> so you're glad to see them. Yeah. But it's like, where, where do you find stuff like that? Everything is available. What's happened is most of the shelf space in supermarkets is sold to the highest bidder. So you don't find a lot of these little, little manufacturers out there in supermarket stores. I mean, the, 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 Chain stores are actually in the real estate business. They are no longer in the food business. They could care less whether they sell one package because they sell their shelf space to the highest bidder. That's really interesting. Yeah, but but it's the same thing for um, Macy's department store or wherever you go. All of those little boutiques that you see, uh -huh. they're bought and paid for by the manufacturer in order to have a presence in the store. Otherwise, everything else Macy's carries is their private label. And about four or five years ago, 42% of everything sold in a Macy's were their private label products. That's really, yeah. And that's what's going. I mean, you, you go to Costco, what is it, Costco or wherever it is? Or yeah, wherever it I is. try to avoid those places. I yeah. do avoid those places. But uh, people are telling me, well, they used to have a lot of name brands, but now most of the stuff is their Kirkland brand. Well, that's it, because it's their private label, and they can e extend their... Uh, their uh, profit margins right. now, do on you, private label. Do you think that like with uh, like stores like yours, because it's definitely a specialty shop, yeah. it's privately owned, there's a sense of nostalgia to it, and there's like a lot of things going on 
in there's like there's a butcher shop that opened up in uh, West Hollywood that's like it's just these two women own it and it's there like people seem to be going being drawn back to these kind of stores that are independently owned and where you can have a personal relationship with the owner and and or, or the employees and it, I feel like or even simple things like people are buying records again and and it's like people I think are because there's so much of this big corporate bullshit people are yearning for I think community in a weird way and that's why they're coming back to stores like this would you agree with that or well you know I you're talking about those ladies I cut meat for 30 years oh did you oh yeah I mean, I can break a side of beef. The problem, I can do it. Did and you it, do it at the grocery stores originally? Is that no? I didn't do it. I did. I learned here. <laughs> I learned on all my customers. Uh, You're a serial killer. But, you, no, you think, I'm kidding. You did said I, you learn it on your customers. Oh, like, I learned. They didn't I, sound I, like I, you cut them up. <laughs> no, but I. But uh, but I, it's all of the problems that we have today with beef and all of these illnesses and things and and all these problems that beef has had and people getting that's all because of box beef yeah and their vacuum sealers don't work properly when you had a side of beef and you hung it the longer you hung it the more tender it became because the enzymes would break down but let me tell you what big business found out about the beef industry they used to take the beef after the animal was slaughtered and they'd put them in a chill room and they'd sprinkle it with water to bring the temperature of the carcass down. And it was in there. And then after the one day in there, then they'd move it into the, to the chill room. And they'd let it hang there for two days. And, and the beef would firm up and so that it could be carried. Otherwise, it's pretty sloppy because it has so much water in it. Well, they found out that if you put it, after you, you get it out of the, uh, you put it in the chill room and let it hang there, in two or three days, it loses like 30 pounds of side of beef. But if you send it out after it's been sprayed, you're going to make, uh, you, the beef will actually weigh more, the side of beef will weigh more than when it was slaughtered. So they're making money. That's right there is where the first problems began because beef wouldn't age if you put the water in right. it. Right. That's it, man. <laughs> I mean, people don't know this. No, they don't, and that's. I think. A, I think the more people would learn learn these things, the more there'll well, be a backlash. I, that's what I'm talking about when I say that people have forgotten more. All those old butchers that would get the side of beef down and break it down, you could hang it 30 days. It would age. You trim the fat off. You, the mold. I'm. I swear the mold would be two inches growing on it if you uh -huh. left it 30 days. But you just trimmed it off, and it was tender and delicious, and it was wonderful. After talking with the butchers and, and you, like I, t I talked to one of the butchers at that place, and it's like, I will never buy meat anywhere else but like a hands-on butcher that I can talk to. But, but the problem is you can't buy sides of beef. I don't have, I live it. in a studio. You can't buy sides right. of beef. It's all box beef. They're oh, no, the, this butcher shop in West Hollywood, they're a, man, they're a processing plant. They have a license. So they, you can walk in there and they have a side of, side have, of beef. Yeah, they're, they, they'll have an entire beef on a table breaking it down. They oh, break it okay. in, in the, it's, it's one of the, like one of five in all Southern California or something. And there's a resurgence of that kind of thing where yeah. I, th and that's where, where I think people, the more people are getting educated on these things, the more they, they want to deal with, like, you know, like I can come in to you and talk to you about the different things you offer, which is, yeah. I think people are getting really frustrated with 
this mass business corporate, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, box beef was done because it was supposed to be more efficient. You could buy the cut of right. meat you want. But the problem is, after they started, the flavor went away. I mean, as soon as they started watering the cattle, yeah, the flavor went away, and it just tasted... You can when you terrible. get like a properly done piece of meat, it's it is an insane difference. It's a big difference, yeah. It's in diff- now when the because you sell things on the internet as well, which is good because yes, we, we have a I have a lot of listeners all over the place, so that's they can go to uh, it's one it's a uh, sodapopstop sodapopstop dot com. Now when did you start selling on online? How long? Oh my goodness, that was fifteen years ago. Oh really? When we first started, like fourteen. I my daughter. Again, Jewel Hauser ran his first show on us. I think it was like January or February 2000. So that's 12 years. Yeah, it's about 12 uh-huh. years. And, and we got a call from this fellow in Tennessee. And he wanted to buy some gray pet. And I said, do you have it? Yeah, I've got it. But, you know, we don't chip. And he just said, well... I was planning a road trip out to the Grand Canyon. I think I'll swing by and pick some up. Wow. And my daughter was listening in on this conversation. And she just said, and now tell me, Dad, are you going to tell people how to spend their money? Because I was all against the Internet. I just said it's going to take all the fun out of it. You know, if it costs more to ship than the product is worth, it makes no sense at all. Are you going to tell people how to spend their money? And I said, no. You have to take care of it. How and how is the business? How has that side of the business been? It's it's been okay, but you know it's not like selling a shirt or something lightweight where you can chip it out and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. It's expensive. I mean, we ship worldwide the, the stuff, and it's very expensive. And we have people, you know, we've shipped as far away as uh, Singapore to uh, to uh, Turkey to uh, Brazil. Yeah. Yeah, I mean all over. But I think like if you're having a special occasion or if you're homesick and that yeah. reminds you of home, you kind of want cuz I grew up in Chicago where there's old style beer which you can't get in Los Angeles. We had it. You did? No, that was about 10 or 11 years ago. Oh man, ago. I I tell you if you could get it, I know a million people would come in and buy it. I know it. that. <laughs> I know Of course you do, that. it's your business. I know Let me that. tell you another thing, John, about I, how to do your business. <laughs> I told the people that own Old Style, I called them and I said, look it, I want some. You, They brought it in, in I think it was late October, November, and it was gone January 1st of the following year. And I said, that's not fair. I mean, people don't even know it's or didn't sell. I said, I don't care. You're not giving it a chance. There are, there are, Los Angeles is the place where more people from Chicago live than any other city in the United States. Is that true? That's true. I know you go to a Cubs Dodgers game and it's it's almost half the stadium. That's right. It's same same even down in uh, because I've seen the Cubs play the Padres and it was more, you know, people. It was insane. Yeah, and I'm saying, don't tell me you can't sell it. Now this is what I want. I want old style. I want Paps. We got the Paps, the Schlitz. We got the Strohs. Yeah. We've got. The, I hadn't seen Strohs in years. We got it. I saw. We got the, um, you know, the um, um, Iron City. We have Dixie from New Orleans. We have Dixie's all these great. Ideas. I love Dixie. So we have these, and I'm saying, how about some old style? And I asked for a few other beers. 
oh, well, we can't send it into the market. It might go old. And I said, if I can't buy a mixed pallet of beer, and if I can't sell it in a month, then I'm going to quit. They didn't care. They're not interested in I know a bar downtown that has been trying to get... I work at this bar twice a week. They have an old-style beer sign out oh, front. Oh, yeah, I heard about it. Yeah, and people come in on a regular basis and go, do you have old, old style? style? And it's and it's actually... I really like old style. <laughs> Maybe it's because it was the first beer I ever drank, but it's like... And I was just in Chicago for a week. It's all I drank all week. Old style. From breakfast to d- through... To <laughs> No food, just old stuff. Just, just old style. Uh, well, John, I want to. Is I don't know if there's. Uh, if you want to, we're gonna wrap it up. If that's acceptable with you. No, it's okay. Whatever you want to do. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, but once again, can we just uh, uh, give the information of your store so people can go online? Yes. And- uh, well, uh, we're this is Galco's Soda Pop Stop. We're located at 5702 York Boulevard, Los Angeles. Uh, the Highland Park area, 90042. And we're on the internet at sodapopstop.com. It's a great website, too. This, I, well, it, was your daughter responsible for the song? I, well, I couldn't get that out of my head. We're, we're trying to get it fixed up. We're trying to get the... We have all of the things loaded. All we got to do is... <laughs> we got it all ready to go, but I don't, she doesn't have the password, and she's on vacation right now. So when she gets back, I think all of the... They'll be able to load or do whatever. I don't know that stuff. I don't. I'm not good at that stuff either. But uh, you have a, 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 a wonderful, great store, and uh, well, I mean, thank you. thank you for doing what you do. It's, I, you know, I think it makes a difference. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned. I've been, you know, like I said, uh-huh. I started when I was six years old. I'm very concerned about small business. I do not consider um, a franchise small business. No, a franchise is somebody. It's just a legal giant pyramid scheme where the person at the top makes the money. Especially the ones where they come out and say, you have to buy 100% of everything you sell from us. Yeah. And they've never been in retail. But they're telling the people below them they have to buy it. And I'm going, oh my goodness, this is awful. I mean, this is, this is not small business. Small business is when you have your hands on the pulse and you're there, and you're taking care of your customers. Yeah, the only difference between the mob and, and those big business guys is they're not saying they know where your kids go to school. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, but it's like it's the exact same tactics. It's, it's The same tactics, the same thing. Yeah, I, don't, I personally would rather support small business any, any chance I got. So well, hopefully everybody else is going to do that as well. Well, I, I think the politicians have to learn. They have to be educated, and I'm sorry. There's too many politicians with their hands out. There used to be a time in this country where the politicians were the servants of the people, and after you read the newspapers and everything and how everybody's taking a bribe and everybody's stealing, are we, are they our servants or are we their servants? Everybody talks about a tax increase, but nobody talks about what do you do with all these politicians that retire, you know? They're the ones that haven't made. How do you spend a million dollars on a job that pays a two hundred thousand or one hundred and fifty thousand? It makes no sense. That's a problem. Yeah, and they—they're all fat cats. That's right. So we're their slave. Revolt. 
<laughs> Thank you very much, well, John. You're welcome. I really uh, greatly. This was a, a wonderful fifty-something uh, minutes I spent with you. I really. Well, I mean, come back and we'll talk about the the credit card machines. We'll talk about a bunch of things. What goes on with the credit card uh. machines? <laughs> Government controls is being controlled so much by big business that they set industry standards. Well, what industry standards are, a way for charging for something that was never charged for before. You know, you've heard about uh, when the hackers broke into these big things. Uh -huh. They found a way of making the money back without upgrading. You know, the, the sensible thing is, well, okay, if the hackers broke in, how can we stop it? In, in Europe, what they did was they put PIN numbers on credit cards. So even if they broke into the system, they would have to break into every credit card individually before they got the information. And that takes a lot of time and a lot uh -huh. of effort. But rather than doing that, they established industry standards to be uh, payment system something compliance. So they go around and charge all the merchants this 20 to $40 a, a month. Just, just to be compliant, yeah. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. We didn't have PCI compliance before and everything. Well, if somebody steals information out of your computer. And I said, but that's why I got this new, this new you know, pin pad where it's all scrambled and encoded so they can't break it. Oh, no, you still have to be PCI compliant. But you can, you can buy, merchants can buy an insurance for about $100 a year that if anybody lost their information, they're covered. So why do I need PCI compliance? But it's the big industry that sets up the standards. Then they go out and the credit card companies, they sell it to all the merchants and force them to sign up or else they can't get a system. They collect the money. Now, watch what happens. Now we're gonna go to PIN numbers to stop the problem with the break-ins on the big, but they're still gonna be collecting that money no matter what happens. And that's the way they operate. And they're going to make, or they are making probably millions. In yeah, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i surprised. I mean, it, it's, it's disturbing to watch the politicians. <clears throat> they set something up, and then you pretty soon you get the lobbyists saying, oh, well, we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do all these things. But they come back and they say, well, we're, they're, and the government says, Business is policing itself. It's taking care of the problems. We don't have to pass a law. But that's industry standards. And yes, the big guys are setting it up so that they can make a profit and control the pipeline. And that's what's going on. It's not fair. It's not right. I mean, what am I getting from PCI compliance as a merchant? Is there, are you going to guarantee me that nobody's going to break into my system? No. What do you want to do? Oh, well, we have to go on your system to make sure that, it, that, that everything is okay. And I told them, I said, if I let you into my system, that means I'm not PCI compliant. Why would I open my system up and let you go in and take a look? I'm not going to let anybody else do that. And they do this all the time. I mean... They're making it harder and harder to have a small business. That's right. Because if you're a big business, you can spread your costs of legal matters and... and all of the PCI compliance out and everything over a thousand units or a hundred units if you're one 
you have to deal with it on a daily basis. So what do you do? Do you take care of your customers or do you deal with all of the, the red tape that goes with it? All the, all the compliance and all the demands that they're making, and they're getting paid for it. You're not getting paid for it. It's a load of bullshit, John. It's exactly what it is. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, your, well, thank you. I will. You stop by. Whenever you like. Well, stop by again. We'll talk some more. I would love it. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you did, please subscribe to it on iTunes. Also, write a review. I've, I've The last couple shows I've done have been sort of charitable things, so I haven't uh, pushed my show as much. I've pushed these people, Wayne Kramer and uh, Pete O'Neill's uh, charity work, so to donate to them. But please... Um, write a review about my show go to my website and uh, donate some money because we are uh, listener uh, funded so and I need money to go pay for gas and recording equipment and uh, and keep the feral audio website going so please uh, just like donate a buck donate five bucks uh, if you're shopping on Amazon please uh, go to my page on uh, theferalaudio.com Go to the Amazon link. Buy your shit through Amazon from me. That would be... And I get a little kickback. And then, you know, you feel good about uh, giving me money and buying yourself bullshit. Uh, I actually just bought a book of, from John Sinclair, who I'm going to be interviewing in September. If you don't know him, he's a pretty radical poet. Uh, he started the White Panthers, so I'm interviewing him in a couple months. Uh, also, tell your friends about the show. Tweet about the show. Feel free to... Uh, Follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore DeWire at Twitter.com there. And listen to the other shows on FeralAudio.com. There's Donktini, there's the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, there's Please Be My Girlfriend, Donktini. These are all super great shows. And, then, you know, hey, when you're driving to work, listen to that shit. It's a great It's better than commercials on radio. And uh, you feel free to email me at conversationswiththewire at gmail.com. And if you have any ideas for interesting guests, please let me know. I would love to have them. Thank you for listening to my show. You are great. I love you.
as a branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.